Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm so happy to welcome back the very first guest of the show, an amazing writer and reader, and not to brag, but my best friend and soul sister, Denise Masser. Denise is a memoir junkie. And it occurred to me that mid-December is a perfect time to host a Memoir Palooza episode, since so many of us like to give memoirs as gifts over the holiday season. Denise reads them voraciously, and I thought it would be really interesting to hear which ones she liked best over the last year. A lot of the books we talked about today deal with grief and loss, which makes a lot of sense to address right now as the holidays can be rough for a lot of people. I think these books fill a deep need for honesty and candor about those topics. Denise is my all-time most trusted memoir resource, and I know you're going to love hearing her tell me why she thinks memoirs are the best books ever. Hello, Denise Masser. Welcome back to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi, Julie. Thank you for having me. I love talking books with you. It is my favorite thing in the whole wide world. So let's talk a little bit about what your reading life has been like since we last spoke on the podcast. You came on and talked to me about an incredible memoir, Mothers of Sparta, which still lives in my head constantly since we talked about it. What's your reading life been like since then? My reading life, you know, I'm 50. So it. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's, I think I'm pretty much where I'm going to be at for life. Like I am a (laughs) memoir, like I devour memoirs. That is my wheelhouse. That's where I live. Um, that I read probably 10 memoirs for every one fiction work that I pick up. Um, and then sometimes I'll even put that piece of fiction down and go back to memoir because I just love reading people's real lives. Like, I want to know this is real. This really happened. They really went through this. Longtime listeners of the show already know this because I talk about you all the time. Um, But Denise is my best friend and we text pretty much daily. um, And it is almost always about books we are reading and sending each other pictures of books we are reading and sending each other things that say, you have to read this one. And she almost exclusively sends me memoirs. And I almost exclusively send her fiction. Let's just let's just be honest right now, since we are all about truth telling in our relationship. You never read the books I send you, do you? I mean, sometimes. (laughs) Lies. (laughs) Lies. <laughs> what did you read? I know you're lying right now. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> I mean, truly, sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> I've read all of your books. Um, and then, I don't know. You could tell me whatever you've sent me and we've talked about over one of our like wine pajama nights. We've definitely talked about some some fiction. But yes, in the majority of your texts, I say, I'll get to that someday. (laughs) If we're being truth tellers here, that's the truth. Well, I'm being the real truth teller, which is that most of the time when you send me memoir things, I go, yeah, I'm never going to read that. And I'll tell you you the truth. Since we're doing memoir palooza today, when I went through this list that you sent me, all I could say was, what the 
fuck? This is why I don't read <laughs> memoirs. Why is everything so sad? I know. I know. Well, I mean, I did want to kind of preemptively say that to you when I looked over my own list. I was like, this is a list of death. Like I, I did not intend, I did not realize that everything I'd read pretty much over the last year had each one of the memoirs had at least a death component storyline. If it was not the major, major thing that the author was um, dealing with. So I did not realize that that was kind of a funny thing to realize when I I'd sent you that list, but um, it makes sense because to me, I read memoirs. 100% to see how people get through things and how, how do they deal with it? Or even um, with some of these on the list, when I read a memoir about somebody going through something unbearable, when I put that book down and I return to my daily life, it makes me feel like, appreciate this. I lost my mom um, during COVID to cancer, as you know, Julie. Mm-hmm. And so as I look back at these books that I chose to read in the last year, they're all writing about loss and death. And I thought, how interesting, you know, whatever you were worried about or bitching about this afternoon does not matter. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of what the hell, Denise, these are some sad books, but um, and I find them, I find them almost the opposite. Like they make me find the joy in my life. I'm so interested in the psychology of that because I do think about that a lot. My tendency with reading is usually um, that's where I'm escaping from the sad and the scary. And so even if I know it's going to be good, my my gut instinct is I don't care how well that written that is. Um, I I already think about those things in life. <laughs> and when I yes, get to yeah. a book, I want to be taken out of the scary realities of life. Reading can serve such interesting functions is I guess what I'm going to I'm thinking here is that some people really, really need it to confront the things and some people really need it to avoid the things. And I think both of those are such valid and important ways to approach your reading life. Yeah, I I think that we're you're saying you want to read to escape and I want to read to find people going through hard things and feel less alone in that. Those two things are very close, actually. Mm. You know, when you think about it, um, we're both gaining comfort in a different way. So it's opposite, but it's also similar in our intention, I think. So tell us about this list that you're sharing with us. Okay. I have five in front of me that were like favorites of the year. And then I want to talk about Rob Delaney's book, which I have not read yet because it doesn't come out until tomorrow. Okay. But I already know I'm going to be obsessed with it. It's it's the number one most anticipated memoir for me this year. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And then we can talk about Harry. Okay, good. All right. So hit us with your favorites that you have read last year. So my favorite memoir from this year was I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Mm-hmm. And that title is really outstanding and um, really offensive to some people. Um, But this, this memoir was so good, Julie, and it's unusual, really unusual for me to listen to an audio book. But I was coming back from a weekend, like way, way up North. And so 
I needed a book that would last and, and get me home. So I put this on and I don't even know if I knew very much about it, but she, Jeanette McCurdy, who is the star of um, the Nickelodeon show, it's, it's for a younger generation, but she's very well known. She's very famous. And so uh, I didn't really know that show, uh, but I, I had read good things about the memoir. And when she starts talking, um, she does her own audio book. I was just immediately drawn in. She, the, you know, the book starts with her childhood. And I think what she did so well is that I was just riveted, like riveted, like I sat in my driveway until it was over riveted, wouldn't even go in the house. She's narrating it as in the beginning as her childhood self. And so she's just very plainly telling you what happened. She doesn't identify it as abuse. She doesn't know it's abuse. She's just a little kid and her mom does what her mom does. And it was so powerful the way she did that. It was so endearing. This memoir is such a mix of terrible abuse and then Hollywood dish mixed in there. And it's just really, really well done. I mean, she has this amazing story to tell, but it, that's the theme through, you know, the the memoir Palooza we're going to go through today for me is it is always about voice and writing chops. I saw that you have the hardcover there in your hands. So after you listened to it, you went and you bought it? Yes. That's that's always for me. That is the sign of a book that's never going to leave my life if I own it in multiple formats. Yes. And if I buy a couple, because as I'm reading it, I'm already like, oh, so-and-so has to have this. Oh, yeah. my niece has to own this. So-and-so, ha- so-and-so would love this. That's the sign. Let's get into the dog one then. I actually found a three dog life. Through you, Julie, because one of the, your interviewees, their best book ever was her other memoir, uh, which is What Comes Next and How to Like It. And just for your listeners, the super short um, summary is in What Comes Next and How to Like It, her Abigail Thomas's male best friend ended up having a tort affair with her grown and willing daughter. And they kept it secret from her and the memoirs about how she got through that with both of them. And so I listened to that podcast and I, I thought that was so interesting. I read the memoir and I fell in love with Abigail Thomas's voice. And so her other memoir is A Three Dog Life. And this memoir is about how her husband, they were living in New York City. Her husband went out to walk the dog, um, their beagle named Harry. And uh, he was struck catastrophically by a car when Harry got out of his leash and ran into traffic. Oh, God. And that was the end of her husband as she had known him. And it was... Oh, the husband was struck. I thought the dog was struck. Oh, no, no. The husband. Oh, Jesus. Okay. And it was especially um, heart-wrenching because they had met when Abigail was 46 and her husband was 57 and she had placed, I didn't even know they did this. This, this, I don't think they do this anymore, but the New York times book review had a place in the back for personal ads. And so she placed one and her husband answered. And then they were, he proposed like 13 days later. So they were just one of these couples that was head over heels in love and soulmates. And then he was taken from her essentially because he wasn't himself um, with this catastrophic brain damage. And so this memoir deals with what do you do in that situation when you're married? It's till death do us part for better or for worse, but 
um, her husband, they can't connect anymore on an intellectual level. Um, he, he lives in a home. He's unable to live at home with her. Uh, and then not only is he, you know, kind of speaking this gibberish, which she sometimes really enjoys because he'll say little, little nuggets, you know, that she's trying to attach meaning to. Um, but then he gets violent when he does come home to visit. Of course, not his fault. It's just his brain is faltering. Mm. And so she's just working her way through that in the memoir. And I just, I absolutely loved it. I love her voice. Based on the title alone, I'm not a big animal person. I would never, I would have gone, oh no, I don't want to read a book about dogs. And then if I heard it was a book about this, you know, catastrophic event, I would also go, "Mm -mm, no, not for me. But having read What Comes Next and How to Like It, I 100% am going to read this. She's the most beautiful writer. It's just (laughs) so beautiful and cozy and real and um, practical is not the right word, but but I want to, I do want to tell you something about the title, Julie, because I think it was poorly titled because I wouldn't have picked it up either if I hadn't read her previous memoir, but listen to where three dog night comes from. Okay. Okay. He writes a three dog life. And then before the, before the memoir starts, this is uh, a quote she has uh, from Wikipedia, Australian Aborigines slept with their dogs for warmth on cold nights, the coldest night being called a three dog night. Oh, isn't that cool? Yes. Yes. So now we know where a three dog life comes from. And also the seventies band three dog night. Okay. Yeah. That's very cool. Even though oddly enough, just yesterday I had a conversation with someone about how grossed out I am by people who sleep with dogs. But there's something so warm and comforting and protective about gauging the weather by how many dogs you need to sleep with there. Why is that so appealing all of a sudden when I'm just naturally grossed out by the thought of animals in your bed? But I think it's the protective quality of it, right? I get it. I get it. You know, we're all just covered in animal fur over here, but I like it too. And I, I think it's, she carries that throughout all of her books actually because she's such a dog person And so, you know, as you're reading these memoirs of, you know, years and years of her life, all these different dogs show up at character as characters, you know, she's constantly, you know, oh, this stray or my neighbor couldn't handle this dog and he was going to take him back. And so he became my dog. And it's all just so charming. And whenever I read her books, I think I'm going to become a dog person and I'm (laughs) not a dog person at all, but I'm like, "I, I need to go find a stray today. She just makes it so lovely because to her, they're, I mean, she lives alone, so they are her roommates. They're, they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're her friends, they're her family. It's really for, if, if you and I love it as not hardcore dog people, I mean, it's really powerful. Mm. Okay. I'm going to read it. So far, I've, yeah. I've already added both of these to my list as we're talking. So I'm going to read both <laughs> <laughs> Our okay. mission is working. Yes. <laughs> you are going to turn me into a memoir reader. Okay, what's next? Let's go to Amy Bloom. Her memoir, In Love, is in voice, um, probably opposite of Abigail Thomas. Amy Bloom is a very, she's just 
when she writes, you can just tell how intelligent she is. And she's not trying to make you feel like she's intelligent because that's annoying. And I'll put that down to heartbeat. Mm-hmm. But Amy Bloom is just intelligent. And this memoir is um, called In Love, if I didn't say that. It is about how her husband came to her. I think he was 60 and had got a diagnosis of early onset dementia, Alzheimer's. And it was progressing pretty rapidly. And he was had been an academic in his life as well. And he said, uh, I don't want to live like this when it gets to a certain point. And I don't mean a point when it's very far gone. When I'm still able to tell stories and laugh and talk, I want you to help me kill myself. And she, as his wife, who they are also deeply in love, um, maybe a second marriage, I think a second marriage. And she agrees to it. She will go to Switzerland with him, go to the facility where this um, service is offered. And it's just a book about from the diagnosis to the point where he does, uh, what's that called when people? Is the uh, euthanasia. Yes, euthanasia. Help of you know medical professionals and nurses at his side, and of course Amy is at his side. But that journey from when he asks her to when it actually happens, I couldn't put it down. It was so interesting to me that two people, two intellectual people, would have this conversation that she loved him enough to agree to it, you know, and would go on that journey with him, and then what it was like. And she wasn't all sentimental about it the whole time, like. Like the thing that sticks with me most, and I don't think this is a spoiler alert uh, because we know he dies in the end, but she's so real about the moment that um, they, you know, when he's, when they're at the facility, they say, you know, we'll be, he'll be drinking the, the mixture in about 10 minutes. You know, he'll be, we have about five minutes before he drinks the mixture. And at any time he can say, no, he's totally changed his mind. And what he chooses to talk about in those five to 10 minutes of the end of final minutes of his life were no memories of Amy. It was memories of, uh, I think, playing college football. And those memories were so lovely to him. And he really wanted to talk about those. And she was heartbroken. She was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is what our final conversation does not involve us. loved her for being brave enough to put that, you know, that, that, I mean, that is the whole theme of memoir Palooza, Julie, is how brave these people are. Uh I want to witness it. I'm in awe of them. And then, and then they don't, you know, it's not like bravado. And they also tell me, you know, when they shit their pants with grief or that, you know, they lost their keys every day for 17 days in a row. I just, the bravery and the humanity is full display in this, in Amy Bloom in love. I loved it. I remember listening to um a uh gosh I'm going to have to find it now. It was on NPR and it was an interview and what I remember most about it is that that she they had to make the decision while he was still of sound mind and they had to go through with it while he was of sound mind because if it progressed it can be considered coercion. And that was the thing that was so heartbreaking to me was they couldn't wait until he was actually too sick. They had to do it while he was still alert and basically himself. 
because otherwise it's not really ethical. Yes, but yes, but also he chose to do it even earlier than he was required. Like, Mm. like most patients are not sitting there telling jokes to the nurses and reliving their glory days. Like he wanted to go when he had the most dignity, when he was, you know, still himself. He went earlier than most people do by choice, which is, was devastating, you know, for her, Mm -hmm. but she also understood it. But, um, you know, she wouldn't have had it that way, but Mm -hmm. she felt it wasn't her choice. And then, you know, she talks about the flight home from Switzerland, bringing his things home and that, you know, there wasn't a need for a second suitcase and just just all those logistical things about loss too were, were, I was glad to read, I was glad to read of them because Mm -hmm. it's emotional. Loss is emotional. Death is emotional. And it's also logistical, you know? Yeah. The details of it are so distracting. Yes. And weirdly profound. Like you, what I have noticed is you get, you get weird about things that don't mean anything. Like we cannot throw away that file of her checkbook receipts. Yes. Yes. We, we had this moment where after my mom passed away and I was, you know, I was just cleaning things out because my, you know, in our family, we things are things and memories in our hearts and mom raised me that way. So I got rid of almost all of her stuff. Um, and when we were in line at the local goodwill to drop off a bunch of stuff, the kids started saying like, no, we can't get rid of our mumus. And then they like ran to the back of the minivan and they started pulling out her mumus. And, and then, you know, my youngest got the the favorite mumu and then they started fighting over that mumu. And I was like, you guys, (laughs) Graham is not in these mumus. Like, we let's give them away. Let's just get rid of them. Graham is in our hearts, but yes, death makes you crazy for things like moo-moos. Yeah. You know? And yes, to everything you're saying, it makes you weird and, and things, objects take on meaning that, that isn't there. It's, it's inside of you. So you didn't keep any of the moo-moos? No, because it was going to turn into world war three for the favorite moo-moo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, let's be honest. The kids, they make you absolutely crazy, but they also make you stop and go, okay, let's get our heads on straight. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Holy moly. Okay, I'm adding this one to my list. I'll read it. Oh, so good. I don't I don't know. Are you going to? Are you are you I'm probably lying, but I feel at this moment, I feel like I really want to read it. I get that feeling. I believe you. (laughs) Right now it's true. Thank you for understanding my truth. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to the next one. Okay. Um, the next one is How We Fight for Our Lives uh, by Saeed Jones. And I don't remember. I think this is one that I just like found in the news section of our library. You know, lucky day to your lucky day. This new memoir is in. Um, and How We Fight for Our Lives is... Side story of growing up in very rural, poor Texas, a uh, black gay boy. Mm-hmm. And his title, How We Fight for Our Lives, is beautiful. It it it's in there twice. It's in there how he fought for his life, um, kind of through his like gay sexual awakening, and how he just had to fight 
to come out and then to stay out. He kept, when he went to college, like he, he wanted to hide again and go back in the closet. And then it's interesting because this book is hardcore. Like this is, you should not read this one, Julie. This is not your book because it's very similar in flavor to Heavy mm. by Kisi Lemon, which you told me was the saddest fucking book you'd ever read in your life. Yes, which I think you told me to read. I think. <laughs> I put it on your doors. I put it on your front. Yeah. Yeah. Read this book. (laughs) Yes. So Saeed's book is very similar in flavor, but to me, I just can't get enough of, of these kind of memoirs because I will, I would never have known what it's like to grow up in rural Texas, a gay black boy. But after I finished how we fight for lives, I feel like I do like, that's what the best memoirs give you. Right. Like, you know, Mary Carr already told me what it was like to grow up a little girl in West Texas, a a little white girl. I've done that. I've lived that life through Mary. But now, you know, I've lived another life in Texas through Saeed. And it is just gorgeous. He's a poet, which completely comes through in his writing. Um, It's one of those books where you're highlighting lines all the time. And, but it's also hardcore, like this, the sex scenes that he writes, you know, obviously from his real life there, some of them are so hard to read because some of them are um, violent towards him and others are enjoyable, but they're just like really like hardcore, um, you know, sex scenes. And so this memoir is definitely not for everyone, but if you did like heavy, um, if you like these kind of coming of age memoirs, uh, especially for anybody who maybe is gay and or loves somebody who's queer and is struggling with, you know, fully coming into that and fully being themselves and giving them that permission. Um, Said Jones is beautiful for that. Like he had to fight for this life that he has now. You know, now he's a professor. He's a best-selling author. New York Times best-selling author. So, um, yeah, I loved it. I love his voice. I will say I do love reading books by poets because I do think there is a difference in their, the way they write. And, and I know exactly what you're saying, that urge to underline everything and to, they, they just have it. Poets have a different relationship with language than the rest of us mortals. They just see the world differently. And then mm-hmm. they're able to like while we might experience the view they're experiencing, or we might experience the feeling they're experiencing, the way that Saeed is able to communicate, I think you should skip this one because I know you so well. But for anybody who can get into like a meaty, sad, challenging memoir, it helps you understand on a deeper level, on a singular personal level, what it's like to be black in America and gay in America. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, I got an entire education, but you do have to be the kind of reader who can just get through some really, really uncomfortable graphic stuff. Mm -hmm. I will say that, but I loved it. Okay. Okay. What's next? Okay. This book is The Salt Path by Raynor Wynn. She is the only memoir that is not memoirs that's not American. Um, she's British. 
And the premise of this book, I can't imagine anybody not devouring this book. I don't know how I found it. I'm pretty sure I just stumbled upon it in the library. Um, but here's the premise. Her and her husband are the most lovely English cottage. They run a, you know, like Airbnb. They've lived in this cottage for 25 years. They raise their babies here and animals. And I've had a million guests that have become dear friends. And through some kind of like financial bullshit they got into with one of his friends. Um, the husband's name is Moth and her name is Ray. This financial mess with one of his friends and something kind of sneaky the friend did. They, through no fault of their own, end up losing their home of 25 years. Hmm. And so they've. it opens with them. All their boxes are packed. And the people who are repossessing their house are literally knocking on the door. And they have nowhere to go. They don't have the funds to start over to buy a new home. I don't even think they have the funds to rent an apartment. It's just a total financial devastation. So they think it can't get any worse. And then the next day they go to the doctor because Moth has been having some shoulder pain and some weird sensations. And he gets diagnosed with a terminal neurological disorder. Oh, my God. So this couple has no home. He's newly terminal, and but they were really, really outdoorsy as um, youth, like just crazy wild camping, they call it, where there's, you know, they don't have campsites like you and I, you know, might glamp. No, they just walk around until they, you know, find a meadow and then they camp there for the night. So upon his diagnosis and finding out they're homeless, she brings out a kind of a hiking book they had at their house. And she says, fuck it, Moth. Why don't, why don't we just walk? Like, why don't we just do this 500 mile walk? You're, you're okay right now. You can do this. What else are we going to do? And he's like, let's do it. And so this entire book is about this couple on this 500 mile walk. And they are almost penniless. They have a very small stipend that, you know, they can, they can hike into a city once in a while and pull some money out of the cash out of the ATM. But it is just so beautifully written. And what I want to say is it is for anybody who fell in love with memoir with, with Cheryl Strade's wild, mm -hmm. this is wild all grown up with middle-aged real life shit problems. It is, and it's perfectly paced for us because Cheryl and uh, lovers of Cheryl, we're all middle-aged now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it is, if you loved wild, you will love the salt path because it's the same book. It's just that book all grown up. I'm, I'm tempted to ask you if he dies at the end, but I don't want you to tell me because I am going to read this because I did love wild, loved it, yes. even though I would not camp for any reason whatsoever, nor would I walk that far for any reason whatsoever, but I loved the book. So don't tell me how it ends. Yes. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you, but it, it's that book where, I mean, if, if you didn't tell me the premise that they were homeless and new diagnosis, and you told me it was a book about this couple walking for 500 miles and how they ate noodles over a campfire every night, I'd be like, no, like <laughs> I, that doesn't interest me at all. 
but it's probably like my second favorite memoir of the year. It was so engrossing. It was, I read it in like two nights. And then there's a second book um, that comes after it. If you absolutely fall in love with the salt path. Okay. Okay. I'm on board for that one. Okay. So see four out of five. <laughs> We're doing okay so far. <laughs> yes. So those are my, my top five memoirs of the year. And I, I just, they're all so different and they're all so brave. And then the one that I'm, I know is going to make my top list of this year. And I plan on taking to my bed tomorrow to read the whole entire thing when it lands on my doorstep is, um, Rob Delaney's memoir about, um, his son, Henry, who died from a brain tumor. And for anybody who's watched the show catastrophe, Rob Delaney was the lead in that. He's re- he's a really well-known comedian. He's he's got his start on Twitter. He's very funny on there. And he's always had this ability to just make the worst shit in life funny. And, and from all the reviews I've read of his memoir, um obviously he doesn't make his son's death funny, but he does find the funny moments in it. Um and one is deranged, deranged grief. And one of the moments that I read in a review is how somebody came up to them um, after Henry's diagnosis and was asking how they were holding up. And they said, well, actually, not only is Henry dying, but his wife's brother had just committed suicide as well. And then this person who was just trying to make small small talk just simply kind of walked away in defeat. And they just cackled in their grief because they were like, they do not fucking know what to do with us. Like we are... We have nothing to offer in the way of small talk. And I just thought that was beautiful. You know, that he, he's just, he needs to write about Henry. He needs us to know Henry. I want to know Henry. And I love that, that he, he's also, you know, finding the, the humor in how his family managed to get through it. What did they find humorous? You know, how did they pull together? What is the right question to ask, do you think? Because I think about this a lot these days as we are in our middle age and we are starting to lose people more. It's just natural. And we all ask that same stupid question. How are you doing? How have you been hanging in there? How have you been holding up? It's the dumbest ass question to ask anybody. Like, how the hell do you think I'm doing? And yet I don't. I don't know why I do it. I don't know why any of us do it. And and yet I don't know what is the right question to ask instead. I don't know. I don't either. I mean, there's, there's, hey, how are you holding up? Which is just us saying, I care about you. How are you? Mm. You know, and then there would be the other extreme, which is what I would actually want a close friend to say, which is like, hey, tell me about a memory with your mom. Mm. Like, tell me something. Tell me something you guys did that's what I actually want to talk about. But there's so few people who could actually walk up to you and say that, right? We can't say that to the majority of people. Can you not? Do you think that's an inappropriate thing to say to someone that you're not like, I know I could say that to you, but could I say that to someone who's more of an acquaintance? Like, tell me, tell me something funny that your mom did once. I mean, is that inappropriate? I I feel like every person that I've ever either read or talked to about grief says, especially the parents of children that they've lost their children. They say, everybody's so quiet about it. And what I wish somebody would say is, 
oh my God, remember that one time when mm. Thomas da 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 da? That was so awesome. It was so funny. It was so him. He loved dragons. Mm-hmm. And then, and people don't do that because they, they think maybe the grieving person is having a moment of peace where they're not thinking about. Mm-hmm. But it's just never like that. You, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, maybe you hit the nail on the head. People would always welcome talking about their loved ones, I think. What an amazing question that would be is like, what, what did he, what did he do at Christmas or um, what was his favorite Thanksgiving food or anything, anything, just tell me what you know of this person. Tell me, I can see it would be such a, such a bomb for their soul to just get all these thoughts out. And if you know them, I mean, the, the number one thing, you know, obviously pull all these writers and the number one thing they say, ones that have lost a child is they're terrified of people forgetting them. Mm-hmm. So if you could walk up and say, oh, remember this? That was so wonderful. What mm-hmm. a great kid. I, you know, I think that it's scary though. I can't imagine doing it, but now I want to try it. Yeah. It, it, this conversation makes me realize that I just need to reframe the way I approach grief with other people. And I asked the banal question because I know it's socially acceptable and I know it's what's expected of me, but it is not it what's right for the person. Fear. Yeah, but it's not what's it's not what the person needs. Not at all. It's more work for them to be like, yeah, no, we're hanging in there, but yes. it's just more fake, fake bullshit. It's more work for them. You're right. Yeah, because then they're it's almost like they're turning around consoling you. Yeah, exactly. no, don't you don't need to worry about me. We're doing fine. We have meals in the freezer. No, it's fine. We're fine. I promise. We're fine. And the, and so then I can walk away from that conversation and go, okay, I don't need to talk about it anymore because they're fine. Yeah. Which is the opposite of what I went into that conversation with. And and it's it's any of those fake exchanges, those empty exchanges, we all feel more alone after them. You mm-hmm. and them. Mm-hmm. So yes. If you can just touch on anything, pull a real thread into it. It's like they say with, you know, when you want to help somebody, don't ever say, you know, hey, call me if you need anything. You say, "Uh, I just dropped something off on your porch. It's a coupon for house cleaning. Love you. Bye. Yeah. You know, but you don't learn that stuff till you're our age. And so in a way, that's what these memoirs are, that all of these ones that you have talked about here are all people who are saying out loud, this is what I actually, this is the reality of it. This is what I want you to face with me. Instead of just, oh, that was really difficult, but, you know, I prayed a lot and now I'm fine. And these in every single one of these memoirs, the person is saying the scary part out loud. Absolutely. That is what I love about memoir. They are manuals. They're life manuals. Mm, Life manuals. Well, listen, I love Rob Delaney, but I guarantee you, no matter what you tell me after you read this book tomorrow, I'm not reading this one. Absolutely not. If I love it and I read it in 24 hours, don't be mad if I can't help myself and I put it on your front stoop. <laughs> I, I don't expect you to read it, but I know I'm going to love it. I know you are too. I mean, what do you, as a memoir expert, which I, which you definitely are, this is what you have your degree in. This is what you do for a living also. What are your thoughts in general on celebrities writing memoirs? Like, do we really need celebrity memoirs? I mean, I guess the answer is yes, because of the Jeanette McCurdy book. But sh- she's a unicorn, right? In general, what do you think of celebrity? She's an absolute memoirs? unicorn. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, she's an absolute unicorn. Um, I think. I mean, I have. We could do another podcast on my thoughts on celebrity memoirs. My first is there's such a bummer for memoirs like me who are trying to get published because uh, a celebrity memoirs kind of set the bar for platform and how many people you engage with. And obviously, I'm never going to engage with as many people as Matthew Perry or Jeanette McCurdy. So they fill a whole, you know, a whole bunch of the memoir section in any Barnes and Noble. And most of them, I'd say 75% are just shit writing. Mm. Like they're not interesting. They're just interesting because they're famous. But then there are the Jeanette McCurdy's and the, you know, the Rob Lowe's who spin this gorgeous yarn and like Bravo, Mm -hmm. you know, really well done. Um, Andre Agassi, you know, I love that memoir as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I mean, they obviously are huge moneymakers for the publishers, so they're never going to go away, but they're never the first ones that I'm, I'm drawn to ever. Mm. Okay. And now you mentioned Andre Agassi. Isn't his co-author, I, I guess it's not a ghostwriter because I believe it's known, but doesn't he have the same co-author as Prince Harry? Is that right? Or am I making Oh my God, right? is that true? Moringer. Moringer? Is that- oh, that book's going to be so good. What? Really? Were you going to read it before I told you that fact? For sure. I was going to take to my bed when the minute it lands on my doorstep. Yes. I mean, I have, I'm not as much of a royalist as you are, but I mean, I stayed up all night to watch Princess Diana and Prince Charles wedding when I was a little Mm -hmm. girl. And Mm -hmm. I've been, I've had my eye on Harry and William the whole time. And I will absolutely be reading his memoir. I'm so excited for it. Yes. Oh my God. You've changed everything for me, Julie. I'm serious. I wanted to read that book solely for the dish and the shit that goes down in, um, the palace like that. I wanted to hear what do they actually eat? Like, does does it, does a Tatino's pizza ever go in there? You know, how do people actually treat each other? I wanted to read all that dish, but now that I know it's actually going to be well-written because Mm. I'm telling you, I do not give a shit about tennis but I'm obsessed with Andre Agassi's open. I've gifted it like 10 times. Oh my God. That book is so well-written. So now I'm like, oh my God, you've just made my day. Okay. Excellent. Well, I have it pre-ordered also, and I am going to take to my bed that day as well. So we can just text each other the day it arrives. Oh my God. I will be texting you passages. Yes, totally. (laughs) I cannot wait. Now, Denise, will you share with our listeners, where they can find you and your work. Anyone who has known me for more than five minutes knows that I always say when I'm asked, my, you're the best writer I've ever known. And I say that every time your name comes up. So um, will you share with our listeners where they can find you and what you're up to and the journey that you are going on with your own memoir? Yes. First of all, thank you for saying that. Thank you, Julie. That's, you can be such a better writer when you have a best friend in your corner. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Um, okay. So my journey is, um, I've written a memoir, uh, about the adoption of my infant son and how kind of very unexpectedly, uh, adopting Henry led to me finding the woman who had given birth to me. And so, uh, the title of my memoir is search history, a memoir of loss, obsession, and meeting my mom at 40. 
And it's currently with my agent and starting in January, it'll go on submission where we're going to try to find a publisher. Um, and you can find all of my writing at my website, which is denisemasser.org. And uh, if the memoir sounds interesting to you, you can also read the first 10 pages there on my website and uh, sign up for my newsletter. I send out a newsletter every like six months, so I promise I won't uh, bombard <laughs> anyone. And yeah, so that's probably the best place to find me. I'm I'm everywhere as at Denise Master at Twitter, um, on Facebook, Instagram. So you can find me all those places talking about memoirs and my kids and motherhood and writing and reading. And I highly recommend it, obviously. And I want to thank you for joining me today and uh, taking up way more time than I said we would take up. But technically, that's your fault for being so interesting. And <laughs> <laughs> And I well, anytime we talk about books, Julie, we're going to take up more time. <laughs> I, know. I know it was kind of foolish to think that we could get through five books in the allotted time, but it's fine. It's I'm fine. So sure. I'm so sure. But I thank you for joining me. And I hope you know you're my favorite person in the whole world to talk books with. And I hope you'll come back anytime you have a new book you want to tell me about. Well, thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you for Memoir Palooza. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear about your favorite memoirs. And if you want to join me and Denise in our read in bed all day adventure when Prince Harry's book is released. I mean, you read in your bed, not in my bed. Don't make it weird, okay? Cool. Okay. Let me know on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your book loving friends and rate it on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.